It's a great political and religious center. In fact, Sir William M. Ramsey calls it the royal city, the city of authority. And when John wrote this, Pergamum had been the capital city of the region for more than 300 years. The city was a noted center for culture, education, boasting of one of the greatest libraries of the ancient world with more than 200,000 volumes. Pergamum was also a very religious city. It had temples to the Greek gods, temples to the Roman gods of Dionysus, Athena, Demeter, and Zeus. It also had three temples dedicated to the worship of the Roman emperor some 50 years before Smyrna won the honor of building the first temple to Tiberius, the city of Pergamum won the right to build the first temple to worship Caesar Augustus in the province of Asia. Like Ephesus and Smyrna, Pergamum was a wealthy city, but it's a wicked city. In fact, the reason why I've called it the polygamous church is, check this out, the Greek prefix, as seen in words such as pervert, and perversion and the like, it means opposition. The suffix gamos is seen in words like monogamy, bigamy, or polygamy, and it means marriage. Pergamum means objectionable marriage. Pergamum represents the church age from 312 AD until the Reformation period. It is during this time the church, though married, traditionally Pergamum, as I said, is known as the compromising or compromised church. But the truth is, is this church is the double married church. Married both to Christ and to the world. The only thing sharp enough to separate that which is indistinguishable is the double-edged sword, which is the word of Jesus. The word of God that separates and divides, as we read in Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is living and effective and sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart We need to realize tonight the dividing line is always the word of God. It's by his word that his church is to be cut away from the world. And so Jesus, using his dividing word, commends Pergamum. He says, I know where you live. And it's where Satan's throne is. And what Jesus is saying here is he's acknowledging, I know the environment you live in. I know the type of society that you're living in. I know the culture in which you're living, the culture in which the church in Pergamum lives. By the description that Jesus gives, it's not a warm and friendly environment for a church. It's not a welcoming place for the church. He says, you are in the place of Satan's throne. Sounds very ominous, right? 
oh, you live where Satan does. I'd be moving. The church of Pergamon was steeped in secular culture all around him. Satan didn't simply reside in Pergamum. That's where his throne is. That's his capital city. That's where he spent all of his time as described by Jesus. Pergamum is a very center of emperor worship. And it's where Satan dwelled. On top of emperor worship, it's also, known, it's also the center for worship of a deity known as Asclepios, represented by a serpent. You see, Asclepios was the god of healing and knowledge. And there's a medical school at his temple in Pergamum. And due to this, people sick and diseased from all over the world would come to Pergamum, and they would come there for relief and healing. According to one commentator, William Barclay, sufferers were allowed to spend the night in the darkness of the temple because in the temple there were snakes. Tame snakes, of course. And in the night, the sufferer might be touched by one of these tame and harmless snakes as it glided over the ground where one might lay. The touch of the snake was regarded as a touch from the God himself, and the touch would bring healing and health. You might even recognize the insignia for this God. It looks very similar to these symbols that we have, which are all medical insignias. That first one there, the, that first one there. <laughs> That's also known as the, uh, the uh, Staff of Hermes. And so the medical field has borrowed from this. You, th you think that you know, there might be a marriage within the world still to these false gods? It's still the symbol used to this day. The symbol of Asclepius is the serpent, as is Satan represented by the serpent. Paganism, political worship, surrounded the area, the seat of Satan's throne. But Jesus commends Pergamum, says despite living where Satan's throne is, despite living in enemy territory, he says, you hold on to my name. Imagine how hard that is to be in that environment and yet hold on to the name of Christ. We're starting to get a taste of it. And then he says, and you did not deny your faith in me. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death among you, where Satan lives. It was that bad. To hold on to the name of Jesus, to hold on to your faith, could cost you your life. But Jesus says you still hold on to it. You see, according to tradition in the account of Tertullian, Antipas was a physician in the city of Pergamum. And when tested, would not renounce his faith would not renounce the name of Jesus Christ, and so he was martyred. In fact, tradition says that they shut him up inside a brass bowl and set a fire underneath him. Pergamum is commended for avoiding paganism in all forms. Refusal to offer on the altar of Zeus or any other gods, the denial of Asclepius as healer and savior, and the refusal to worship the emperors. When it came to outward attacks, they stood strong, 
even in the face of death, commended for living in hostile territory, not denying Christ, not turning from Christ. Man, and it would be great if it ended there. But now comes the rebuke. In verse 14, Jesus says, But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to place a stumbling block in front of the Israelites, to eat meat sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. In the same way, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So though the church in Pergamon was commended for faithfulness, Jesus now rebukes them for what they brought in and what they did permit. Ephesus was one thing. When Jesus says, I have a few things against you, we go back to the church of Ephesus. He says, I have this one thing against you. Now, Smyrna had nothing against them. They were the martyred church. And now he's talking to Pergamum. I have a few things against you. They had some who hold to the teachings of Balaam. Balaam, who taught Balak how to stumble Israel through idolatry and immorality. You see, Balaam was considered a prophet, although some later on in the Bible, he would be described as only a Gentile diviner. His story is in Numbers 22 and 23, and it holds the account of Balaam's hire by Balak, king of the Moabites, to curse the people who have come out of Egypt. When they came out of Egypt and they took on Sidon and Tyre, the Moabites, they said, oh no, don't mess with them. I need to find a way to overcome them. And so he went and he hired Balaam. Balaam was not an Israelite, nor was he a prophet. He was a seer, and yet the Lord spoke through him. We don't know why, but it goes to show the sovereignty of God. God can speak through anybody. God tells him, don't go. He sought the Lord. He said, Lord, this guy's trying to hire me for this, and I'm going to go. And the Lord said, don't go. But then he goes, please, Lord, please, Lord. And, and you know what you see here is when we get an answer from the Lord and we continue to go against him, we, we see that God makes his anger known. In Numbers 22, verse 22, it says, but God was incensed that Balaam was going. And the angel of the Lord took his stand on the path to oppose him. And if you've ever heard a pastor say, I'm only up here and it's only because God speaks through me, but don't worry, he can speak through a donkey. That's where it comes from. Because the next one, Balaam was riding his donkey and his two servants were with him. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing on the path with a drawn sword in his hand, she turned off the path and went into a field. So Balaam hit her to return her to the path. Then it says, Then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow passage between the vineyards with a stone wall on either side. The donkey saw the angel of the Lord pressed herself against the wall, squeezing Balaam's foot. So he hit her once again. The angel of the Lord went ahead and stood in a narrow place where there was no room to turn to the right nor to the left. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she crouched down under Balaam, and he became furious, and he beat the donkey with his stick. And then the Lord opened the donkey's mouth, and she asked Balaam, What have I done to you that you have beaten me these three times? Balaam answered the donkey and said, 
you made me look like a fool. If I had a sword in my hand, I'd kill you now. But the donkey said, am I not the donkey that you've ridden all your life until today? Have I ever treated you the way, this way before? And animals can think logically. And he goes, no. And then the Lord opened Balaam's eyes. And he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the path with a sword drawn in his hand. And Balaam knelt low, bowed in worship on his face. Then the angel of the Lord asked him, why have you beaten your donkey these three times? Look, I came out to oppose you because I consider what you're doing to be evil. The donkey saw me and turned away from me these three times. If she had not turned away from me, I would have killed you by now and let her live. Whoa. That's in the Bible? So Balaam goes with Balak from here, but is instructed to only speak what God says and not what Balak requests. Three times, Balak comes to Balaam and says, curse Israel. Three times, Balaam blesses Israel instead of cursing. And so Balak withholds the reward promised to Balaam. He said, if you will curse Israel, I will pay you this money. Balaam didn't care, right or wrong. He saw that money and said, I want that money. When Balak said, I'm not going to pay you because you didn't do what I asked you to. Balaam says, I can't say anything but what the Lord put in my mouth. And then he goes, you know what? I still want to get paid, so here's what. Let me tell you something. Numbers 25. When Israel was staying in the Acacia Grove, the people began to prostitute themselves with the women of Moab. The women invited themselves to the sacrifices for their gods, and the people ate and bowed and worshipped to their gods. And so Israel aligned itself with Baal of Peor, and the Lord's anger burned against Israel. The Lord said to Moses, Take all the leaders of the people and execute them in broad daylight before the Lord, so that his burning anger may turn away from Israel. So Moses told Israel's judges, Kill each of the men who align themselves with Baal of Peor. But when we go to Numbers 31, verse 16, which is kind of a recap of all this, we see what happened here. Because as the Israelites intermixed with the Moabites, and they adopted all the things of the Moabites, and then God had to kill those who were being disobedient and intermixing and everything, in verse 16 of chapter 31, we see, yet they are the ones who, at Balaam's advice, incited the Israelites to unfaithfulness against the Lord in the Peor incident, so that the plague came against the Lord's community. The doctrine of Balaam is Pergamum objectionable marriage with the world. That's the doctrine of Balaam. So he says that you, you have those who teach the doctrine of Balaam. Then he says that you have those going in the way of Balaam. The way of Balaam is as a hireling. He's a prophet who had the privilege and honor to bless Israel because God gave him the words to speak. But he wanted that money. He didn't care what was right or wrong. He wanted that money. That's a hireling. 
When you have somebody who doesn't care what it is that they're doing and they're just doing it for the money, that's a hireling, also known as a mercenary if you're you know, talking about things of war and stuff. Nope, they don't have any code of conduct or what it is that they're doing. All they care is who's paying them. Peter wrote about it in his second epistle. Second Peter chapter 2, in verse 15, he says, They have gone astray by abandoning the straight path and have followed the path of Balaam, the son of Boser, who loved the wages of wickedness. And he said, the error of Balaam. The error of Balaam is sacrificing eternal riches for temporal gain. That's where you say, the future's so far off. I'm all about the right here and the right now. And so, for temporal gain right now, I'll sell off my entire eternal future. Jude, verse 11. Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain and plunged into Balaam's error for profit and have perished in Korah's rebellion. The second thing Jesus had against Pergamum is he says that in the same way, there are also those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Those who would teach the licentiousness of sin, which is just a really big fancy $10 word to say that we have freedom in Christ, and they added on to that freedom to sin in Christ, which is a doctrine that comes straight from the pits of hell. Jesus did not set us free from sin so that we can sin. He set us free from sin so that we could truly experience life and follow him and no longer be slaves to sin. The licentiousness is the Gnostic belief that not being under law meant grace covers all and so everything is permissible. What did Paul say in Romans 6.15? What then? Should we sin because we're not under the law but under grace? Absolutely not. Perish the thought. Don't even entertain that thought. Between the teachings of these two groups, we see the church stumbling. We see idolatry and immorality occurring and taking place room being made for sin because it was profitable. Sin being allowed because it's pleasurable. And the church, though married to Christ, was mingling and being intertwined and married with the world for the comforts, for the pleasures, and for the wealth provided by compromise. The same happened in church history beginning with Emperor Constantine in 313 AD. And it continues today. The church got a taste of power when it emerged with the state. You see, the church became the one that was in power in making the laws of the land. Do you know how America was formed and, and where the idea came from? They were escaping the persecution of the Church of England. 
And so we came here and we created a government and then we expected the government to keep the church safe. And God said, they, the, the government was never supposed to keep you safe. So that's me. And that's what we're finding out today. As we watch and we go, oh no, what are we going to do? Because we start to see that no longer does the government protect the church. No longer does the government follow that document that the church so strongly held on to. What's the church to do? The church sacrificed its purity and its fidelity in Christ for comfort, pleasure, wealth, power, and influence. Now it's paying the price. And that's the Western church. If you look in the Eastern church, they've been under persecution constantly. Us in the West, did you know that the Eastern church has been praying for us to go through persecution? He said, I can't wait for that Western church to go through persecution. And we're like, wait, we've been praying for you to not have persecution. They're like, well, we've been praying for you to have it because we want to see you purified. So Jesus exhorts the church in Pergamum. Jesus is exhorting the, the polygamous church, the church that thinks it can be married both to the world and to Christ. He exhorts the church. He says, repent. Otherwise, I will come to you quickly and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Jesus is exhorting Pergamum and any today who find themselves compromising also. And he says, repent. It's a simple remedy. But it's the only remedy. True repentance would be a contrition of heart, confession of sin, and a change in conduct. And Jesus says, unless they do repent, he is coming quickly. And that phrase, coming quickly, doesn't mean like, oh no, time is up and like, I I'm already on my way. What he's saying is, I'm coming imminently. You have no idea when I'm coming. Be ready. Repent now. Don't put it off. There is no time. And he says, when I come, I will fight with the sword of my mouth. Because the Lord will not tolerate polygamy or unfaithfulness or compromise within his church. Because we are to be his bride. And when he comes with the sword of his mouth and the word, none will stand against the word of the Lord. Verse 17 is the promise that he gives to the church in Pergamum because the church in Pergamum is still the church. He says, let anyone who has ears to hear, listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will also give him a white stone, and on this stone a new name is inscribed that no one knows except the one who receives it. Again, the promise from Jesus is for the one who would have ears to hear and listen. There's a difference between hearing the word of the Lord and listening to the word of the Lord. It involves an action and an obedience. And then he says, to the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. You see, Israel came out of Egypt, the type of the world that they were intermixed with. 
They were given bread from heaven called manna. Literally, it means, what is this? This manna sustained them throughout their wilderness wanderings. For 40 years, manna fell from the sky. They were fed miraculously. Jesus says to the one who conquers, he's promised the hidden manna. Christ, the manna hidden from the world. The bread of life who provides sustenance during the believer's walk, during our walk as believers, as pilgrims in this wilderness where we're at now. But on top of that, Christ not only promises himself to the believer who would conquer, he also promises to the conqueror a white stone. And you're like, I have a lot of those in my yard. We live in El Paso. We got stones everywhere. Let me tell you a little bit of something about stones in the ancient world. In the ancient world, a white stone had many associations. If you had a white stone, it could be used as a ticket to a banquet. Think of any banquets that you might be invited to by Christ coming up recently. Uh, not recently, uh, soon. <laughs> not recently, I promise you. If you get, are given a white stone, it could be a sign of deep friendship. Christ is saying, my friend. It can also be used in a census. The white stone is evidence of having been counted. If you are in Christ Jesus, you count. He's counted you. It can also be in the trials and the courts, a sign of acquittal. Declared not guilty, justified in Christ Jesus. And on that white stone, whatever it may represent, I think it can represent every last one of those things. Jesus has invited all those who would believe in his name to a banquet that he is preparing. Jesus has called all those who would follow him. He says, I no longer call you servants, I call you friends, for a servant does not know what his master is doing. Jesus says, I have counted you all worthy. And the most wonderful thing is Jesus has all declared you to be righteous, who would believe in his name, forgiven. Jesus is the one who has been given dominion to judge And to acquit. And so on that white stone is promised a new name inscribed upon it, which no one knows except for the one who receives it. This is a very symbolic of that intimate relationship that you will experience with the Lord in heaven. Think about it this way the white stone inscribed with your name is an engraved invitation, proof of a reservation. For the one who overcomes and conquers. There's significant meaning that is said in the white stone in its actual historical setting. Athletes who were winners in the games at the arena, they were given a special white stone with their name inscribed on it. 
This stone was essentially a VIP pass for the athletes to attend a special awards ceremony at a banquet held at the end of the event. Could be our invitation to the Bema Seat of Christ. Interestingly, as he received the white stone, he would also receive a loaf of bread. In much the same way, the overcomers have their names written down in the Lamb's Book of Life, which grants them a place in the wedding feast in heaven. Satan never could accomplish much against the church in the form of persecution. Because many would hold fast and did hold fast like Antipas. So Satan went to accomplish his goals by using deception. The strategy was first violence, and then he realized, let's try alliance. A difficult environment never justifies compromise. Doesn't matter what difficult environment you find yourself in. It doesn't matter what situation you may be facing. We can all conjure up ideas in our mind of, I don't know what I would do in that situation, but here's the thing. It never justifies compromise. Hold fast to the name of Jesus. Don't deny the faith. It is easy for a church in such difficulty to justify this exact type of compromise, saying, you know what? We just need to revise this document and then the government will protect us all over again. We just need to placate the government and they'll protect us all over again. It's very easy when the fire starts coming to compromise. The church today is facing that temptation to compromise in order to achieve fitting, fitting in, in order to achieve comfort, in order to maintain or achieve wealth and to hold on to influence. The Jewish men fell right into the trap and many of them became good neighbors. They didn't want to offend anybody. And so they would eat meat from idolatrous altars. They would commit fornication as part of heathen religious rites. 24,000 people died because of the disobedient act of compromise in Numbers chapter 25, verses 1 through 9. Why did this bit of ancient history apply to the believers at Pergamos? Because a group in the church said, there's nothing wrong with being friendly to Rome. What harm is there in putting a pinch of incense on the altar and affirming your loyalty to Caesar? Remember Antipas refused to compromise and was martyred but others desired to take the easy route and cooperated with Rome. The Lord accused the Christians in Pergamos of sinning, of committing spiritual fornication by saying Caesar is Lord. Of course, this compromise made them welcome in the Roman guilds and protected them from Roman persecution but it cost them their testimony and it cost them their crown. The church and the state became married and they lorded it over the people. We see that in the history of the Catholic Church as they went on and they continued on. And there were such atrocities known as the, the Crusades that occurred. There were such atrocities known as the Salem Witch Trials, the Inquisitions. 
the doctrine of Balaam and the teaching of the Nicolaitans merging together. Constantine was the first Roman emperor that did not persecute the Christians. In fact, he legalized Christianity in AD 313. We don't know if he was a Christian or not, but he legalized it. He declared it the official religion of the Roman Empire. The tables are turned now. It's popular now to be a Christian. And he pushed it. He said the Roman Catholic Church had a number of its roots starting here as Constantine brought the church and the Roman Empire together and married them together as they melted. The church became married to the world at that point instead of married to Christ. Paganism merged with Christianity. Pagan temples became Christian churches. The pagan priests did not want to lose favor with Rome. They had been in Rome's favor all this time. And so what they did now is they just, they went outside and they erased the name of the temple and they put up a Christian church name on it. But they still worshiped their idols. They just renamed them. Now, instead of them being a God's name, they were a saint. Ah, now we're worshiping Saint so-and-so. Same idol, same statue, different name. Lines were blurred and it became hard to distinguish true Christians from those who just claimed to be. You couldn't tell them apart. The church and the world were married almost inseparably. Have we today blurred the lines between Christianity and the world to where we cannot even tell the difference? Do we stand out as different or are we just kind of married to the world? Second Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, Paul said, Do not be yoked together with those who do not believe. For what partnership... Is there between righteousness and lawlessness? What fellowship does light have with darkness? What agreement does Christ have with Belial? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? And what agreement does the temple of God have with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, as God said, I will dwell and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from among them, be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch any unclean thing, and I will welcome you. It's the word of God that is the separating line for the church. By God's word, you need to answer this question. Who are you married to? The world or Jesus? You can't be married to both. Heavenly Father, we come before you tonight, Lord. And Father, as we consider that question, Lord, I pray for your spirit to search our hearts, to bring up your word within our heart, to show us clearly, to separate concisely. Father, reveal to us where we're at. Not so that we could feel bad about ourselves, not so that we can um, think that you hate us or anything, but Lord, that it would be revealed to us because we know that you love us and you're rebuking us and you want to correct us before you come. 
Lord, as we look out and we, we know many examples of those who profess the name of Christ but don't live it. We, we see those who compromise faith and they, and they say God is okay with this and we see them marry sin inside the church. Lord, I pray that you would purify your church with your word, Father God. Lord, that you would show us what is of you, what is not of you. Father, that we would not overlook that, but that we would allow your word to have its dividing effect, Father, so that we can be pure with fidelity towards you as your bride. Those that don't know you, Father, I pray that your spirit would be working and, and those that have not placed their faith and trust in Christ, you can become married to Christ by professing faith in his sacrifice on the cross and asking him to forgive you of your sins, believing in his name for the resurrection. And church, for those of you that are his, may his word always guide your steps for they will keep you separate from the world as you should be. In Jesus' name, amen.